0: Oh, yes. Finally. What's going on, man? How we doing? Now, hold on, let me,
1: let me get you back on screen. So hold on one second,
0: yo. All right. Good. My bad for making you wait like that, man. I don't know what was going on. It would, of course, mess up the one time when we get you on here, man.
1: It's all good. That's what it does. we
0: good. <laughs> What's going on, know? man?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Man, I appreciate you yeah. talking to me. This is awesome, man.
1: No, it's all good. I appreciate the notes and everything. So, yeah, let's make it happen. I'm
0: excited, man. Yeah, absolutely, man. So, yeah, I just want to sit down and ask you a few questions, man. Like I said, you're a legend in the game, man. I mean, it's not – not every day somebody gets to sit down like me and talks to an absolute legend. So, first question I want to ask you, man. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'll say no. I appreciate the love, man. It's all good. It's all good.
1: That's what I'm here for. Let's go.
0: All right, man, so who influenced you to be a writer, man, when you were young?
1: Well, I think the two biggest influences I had were um, Nelson George and probably Alex Haley when I was young. Um, Alex Haley from not necessarily doing Roots, but, you know, um, his Playboy interviews and him doing the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, you know, he was the first writer I really, really started paying attention to, um, He used his voice and his skill set in a different way. And that's when I was a kid. Um, my father was a journalist, uh, but he was, well, my father was a reporter. Um, and so so that's kind of in my blood, I guess, to a certain degree. But um, there was something about what Alan Taylor did and, and the way he was able to tell the stories and interviews he got at Playboy magazine you know, basically moved me as a kid. And then as I got into, you know, college, early college, late high school, uh, Nelson George started to appear in Billboard magazine. Um, And that really got me like, oh, my God, this guy is, you know, he was the first person really that was documenting what was going on in hip hop in a music publication uh, in New York. Me being in Chicago, you know, I really, here's my introduce, introduction to what was really, really going on in New York musically through hip hop, through hip hop outside of the cast that I knew, you know, in New York. But he, he was telling stories as opposed to just, you know, yo, listen to this cut by EPMB, or listen to this cut by, you know, Love Book Starsky, or listen to this cut by, you know, Bambata, or, you know, this mix by Cool Herd or Grand Theodore. All this a sudden, you know, it's just, that was just music that we were experiencing. But Nelson George was actually on a national level telling the stories of what was happening in New York. And, you know, his writing, you know, and following him, like I said, late high school, you know, early of college. Those are the two biggest influences, man, that that I really followed and crafted. An understanding of what it was like to possibly be a writer. You know, I, I can't, I can't sit up here and lie and tell you that I looked at them and saw, you know, okay, this is something I wanted to do. I just saw a great interest in what they were doing because they showed me what it was like and what it took to actually become that. You know, so so those were the first impressions. Those two were the real heavy first impressions on me gaining a true understanding of, you know, if I decide to go into the field, you know, this is what, you know, this is the bar that was set for me to at least try to get close to, you know, and you know, that, that initial inspiration, aspiration that, you know, it could be, it can't be done. You know what I'm saying? They, they showed me early what this could look like. Um, whether I wanted to do it or not. So I gravitated to them extremely early and they had major, major influence on, uh, you know, giving me a platform to understand that, you know, a a career in this field could actually be done. Now, outside of them, because you asked at an early age, you know, that, that was the original foundation, but what really led me into, you know, me deciding to go into it and the influences that came after the foundation was laid, that would be uh, Spike Lee and Gary Smith in Sports Illustrated. They're the ones that as I got older, you know, after college, that, okay, I can actually do this. And Spike, just from a storytelling standpoint, of us, him being a little bit older than four years older than, but watching how he started off his career so independently and um, creating a voice for himself. His just happened to be through cinema, you know. But I saw a lot of myself in everything that Spike Lee was doing, the, the way I thought, the way I approached creativity, the way I looked at storytelling, you know, just who he was as an individual, going to HBCUs, just just his whole his whole existence. I connected with. Uh, while I was still in college. And then just reading Gary Smith on a regular basis. Gary Gary Smith just, you know, from a sports standpoint, just anytime you read anything that he did, he he was the epitome of what I thought sports journalism was supposed to be about. So when I entered into the field, when I decided to, you know, that this was, was going to be what I was going to do, it was those two. You know, and still to this day, it's still those two, really. You know, I could throw some others in there. But initially, you know, when I first got into the game, you know, the foundation was laid by Nelson George and Alex Heavy. But Spike Lee and Gary Smith were – they were my carrots, man. They they were the ones that were like, okay, if you're going to do this, these are the two people you have to do whatever you do and try to be exactly like them. Like, I'll never be as good as Gary Harris. I mean, Gary Smith. But, you know, he – you know, like, like Jordan was or like Kobe was to cast playing ball and stuff like that. He was the one that I'm like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can to get as close as I can to what he does, you know. And Spike just everything else to kept me grounded, you know, um, in everything else I was doing just from a, you know, career, from a career standpoint, you know, how I needed to have my own business, how I needed to make sure I had my own voice, how I had to stay strong, stay grounded, you know, and, and what I did had to have, you know, had to maintain – being unapologetic you know um you know I I don't know I don't I can't even say that if if Spike Lee didn't exist that I'd exist in that standpoint because he definitely became you know the quote-unquote yellow big road that I follow from a career standpoint so sorry for the long answer
0: no no man hey this is awesome man this uh, like I said you know just going back to that question man you were who I looked up to and what I wanted to do and I want to emulate your success and the type God, of, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're one of the most influential people in sports media. So once again, thank you so much, man. Well, that's oh, a, man, no
1: problem.
0: yeah. But just uh, moving on to the next question here. So I read in the uh, Scoop Manifesto on page two, you said that throwbacks never go out of style. So what's your favorite throwback jersey of all time? Number one.
1: Just, uh, <laughs> the uh, ABA Julius Irving Nets 32. Yeah, that's still with the stars. That's still that's still the one, as far as I'm concerned. It's so iconic, and you look at what it meant, and just you know, even from a design standpoint, you know that that jersey just it just kills it, man. It, I I don't think that jersey twenty years from now is ever gonna lose its relevance. You know, you can have the Mike Jordans and you know all this that, and the other, but I think that jersey, you know. Because of where it came from, because of what it meant and who and, and who was on. For me, that's that's still it. Um, now, I gotta give credit to Mitchell and Ness for developing that Iverson throwback they did that, you know, we put on the cover of Slam Magazine. Um that that that's a that's a close second, you know. Um and to be honest. I mean, the West Unsell Bullets jersey became a pretty big deal. That became a, a, a statement piece, actually, even especially when LeBron and High School Ward. But for me, I would actually throw that Bullets jersey and not West Unsell, but Earl Monroe. You know, um, because the West Unsell jersey almost became mainstream. It became a thing. And for me, you know, knowing the history of basketball, West was amazing. But you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't call him a black Jesus for no reason. You know, so if, if you know, to me, now if you can get Winston Salem, you know, Jerome uh, Rope jersey, then that's on some whole other shit. <laughs> but on, on the real throwback, if you came back and you know, if like you know. Five years from now, you're trying to, like, recreate, you know, the whole throwback thing and have something classic and bring new to the game. You know, everybody may step out, you know, with some old West sale joint, which is beautiful, but if you're the one to step out in a, you know, bullets, Earl Monroe, before you went to the next one, then, you know, we got to buy out of that.
0: Man, I think I'm going to go buy one of those jerseys right after this, man.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, if you can find it and get Mitchell and Ness to make it for you, then, then, God bless you. That's, uh, that's that one. That's that
0: one. Yeah, no, that's, that's fresh. Yeah. yeah that's low-key
1: people know. People know we're low-key to y'all. You, 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 you that dude if you're rocking that one.
0: Shoot, you know? i would be like, yo, Scoop taught me that. He gave me that knowledge, man. Drop some game on me real quick. <laughs>
1: good, good, good. You'll have it before I do. <laughs> that's the damn truth.
0: Shoot, man. Well, all right, that's that's a good uh, transition there talking about the AI cover, man, because I wanted to know about the Tim Duncan story and the Tim Duncan cover. How did you feel whenever you thought you had him, man? How did you feel?
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, Tim and I grew pretty close because um, I really appreciated Tim early on and in a different way. And um, people don't know that Tim... Majored in psychology in school. And my wife majored in psychology. So I have a connection with him because I know how people who major in psychology think. They like to fuck with your head all the time. And Tim was always fucking with somebody's head. And I knew that about him. And I, we talked to him like, yeah, I guess I knew he was coming from it all the time. And he appreciated that because everybody didn't get Tim and his personality. Very cerebral. But extremely smart and ahead of the game. Um, you know, not as low-key as people make him out to be. But he's always thinking and assessing everything around him. And he's always playing mind games. <clears throat> and I got that about Tim early on. And he got that. I got that. So we were all, yeah, we were always, you know, I don't think he messed with me like that because he knew, you know, I appreciated that. I understand it. From that aspect of him. Because I live with it every day in my house. So I say, I, you know, no, nah, you can't you can't run one on me, man. I got it.
0: <laughs> Shoot, man. So who's your favorite person you've ever interviewed, man? Favorite interview of all uh, time.
1: Tim is one of them because Tim is great, man. Tim was always great. And I think he, uh, you know, over the course of his career, he's always been upfront with me and honest. Um, and even doing that cover, before I answer that, even doing that cover that, that, that sold on ice, we created the George Gerber thing. He really, really didn't want to do it because of the respect that everyone kind of has for George Gervin. You know, he has for George Gervin, but he understood what we were trying to do. And, um, you know, he he went along with it. He just wanted to make sure it wasn't exactly the same thing. He needed his own. If he's going to do it, he wanted it to be an homage and not a, you know, replace, you know, a replacement. That's why you get the back black backdrop on him as opposed to the white with George and the exact same thing right you know we wanted Tim to stand on his own when he did that um great I had to go back and read that story but I I really he had a good time doing that interview and spending that story and a lot of stuff that we talked about didn't make it into the interview because we just didn't have enough time but you know um that was Tim's and our first real time like really hanging out for like I think the interview was supposed to be like maybe forty minutes. We to to spending three hours, you know.
0: Just chilling, man. Yeah.
1: yeah. Right. Just, just, just really chopping it up, you know. Um, but back to the favorite interview. Um, I try to stay consistent with that, and people ask me that all the time. Um, and I don't know. They, I mean, the one favorite, favorite, you no, know, just singular interview. Um, was probably Julius Irving. Uh, because it meant so much to us at Slam at the time to get him. He was such a big deal to us, and how he treated us and what he gave us when he finally, you know, gave it, you know, gave it to us. Um, you know, and that, that's still in our minds. That that was that was our little pinnacle moment in getting Julius Irving and, you know, doing a decent job of executing that interview. Um, but. I have to say, just from a, a technical standpoint, my favorite interview is one I did with Baron Davis, where I literally asked him one question and he gave me like an hour-long answer. One question. But when you know, when you do your research right and you come prepared, sometimes you can. Ask the exact question that needs to be asked and you get everything you need. And I just, you know, happened to ask Baron Davis the right question at the right time for for him to give me the right answer. And just from a technical standpoint of interviews, that was my favorite one because that was, I mean, I asked him one question, he gave me his life story. That's really what it boils down to. And, you know, not that it was a back-and-forth interview, but just to get that question correctly and from an interview standpoint, to get that answer just uninterrupted, just tape recorder going nonstop, one answer was, it was a beautiful moment.
0: All right, so I got, a, I got a question. I think this might be a good one. I don't know. We're going to see. Should Jason Williams have won Rookie of the Year in nineteen
1: ninety nine? Paul Pierce, Vince Carter, man, that's a good. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of numbers and. trying to think of numbers um here's the thing he probably should have but the way these work and it kind of works this way in life he started off so far behind in the potential voting of getting this, this award that he didn't separate himself enough to actually win it, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Because coming coming into that season, you know, Vince and Paul were like, you know, on a lot of people's list to already, you know, be, they were front runners. He wasn't a front runner. So you have to make up a lot more ground, you know, to do this. It's like, you know, um, it's I hate to say it, but it's like, you know, Dwayne Wade winning Rookie of the Year over LeBron James or Carmelo Anthony coming in. Now, yeah, you know, Dwayne was the fifth pick or whatever. He wasn't that far behind the five picks, but LeBron was so celebrated and Carmelo was so celebrated that – Dwayne would have to, I mean, I think his rookie season was just as good, if not better, because of what he did in getting him to the playoffs and what he did in the playoffs, even though they don't count. But I could argue in my mind, Dwayne Wade should have been the rookie of the year that year. LeBron shouldn't have, LeBron didn't even get Cleveland to the playoffs. At least Melo got Denver to the playoffs. But Dwayne Wade was so far behind starting off, he would have had to be in the MVP conversation. To at least get rookie of the year over them because they had decent rookie years. I think the same thing applies to Jay Will. Is that he would have had to be in the MVP conversation in order to jump over dudes that were already at the forefront and the front runners for the rookie of the year award. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you
1: but he played, but he played well enough to win it. But he just started off too far behind. That's really.
0: So so you think Melo would have won a championship if he got drafted by the Pistons? I mean, obviously he'd have won a championship. How many? That's more of what I mean. How many would he have won? No, 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 no. I'll be very honest with you.
1: I still can't say that I'll answer that question because if they draft Melo, they never get Rasheed Ross. They, they traded right. for Rashid because Darko wasn't working out. They needed an extra body. And no disrespect to that squad, but Melo was not Rashid Wallace at that time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah,
0: absolutely. He
1: was good, but he's Rashid is the one that got them that, you know, he's the one that won that. Right. He came in with the belt, the mentality, everything. He was everything <laughs> to them. Melo went there, yet, and and you would have to believe that. They keep everybody intact and injury-free for at least the next four years in order for Melo to grow into the player that would have been necessary for them to win championships. So I'm not sure. You know, now, here's the deal. If Detroit goes out and still gets Rasheed Wallace, why we got Melo? Oh, yeah, man, that's without that's question. But I don't see that happening because – you know, Detroit saw Darko's like, this is, this is this is not going to get any better. We need a savior right now. You know, with Melo, you you know, if you look at his rookie year, he'd have been in the rookie of the year conversation and they'd have been like, there's no need for us to get Rashid. He's going to be our Rashid, but it's going to take him a couple of years to get there. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if, you know, they stay healthy if they not try to trade, if they don't win it the next year. Hell, let's be honest. Does Larry Brown even stay there?
0: Oh, I don't think so, honestly. <laughs> it, it, it's lot,
1: it's, 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 to me, it's a lot It's a lot more complicated than just saying, you know, hey, if they draft Melo, it's going to happen. Because, you know, we're looking at them on the closeout. Their window was small after that. You know, it's not like they had a large window. To mess around with for that core, you know, with Tayshawn and Ben and you know Rip and Chauncey, you know, things happened after that. So, and then again, you had Larry Brown situation, you know. So, you know, and, and, and in his case, New York was calling, right? The Knicks were calling, right? And no disrespect, Detroit, but it's hard to turn that that James Dolan money the way it was coming to him. <laughs> so it's it's a. Uh, it's hard for me to answer that question with a positive or a negative. i I, I probably lean more towards he would have gotten one. You know, they would have gotten one, um, at least one, if, if they had drafted him. But that's no guarantee because, you know, think of who they had to beat. And no disrespect, but if they get to the finals and face the Lakers, you know, uh, Carmelo going against Carmelo Malone in his rookie year as opposed to Rashid Wallace, like just murdering Carmelo. big difference, man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're catching Rashid <laughs> in his prime. In his prime.
0: Now Rasheed's been one of my favorite players of all time. I love Rasheed, man. <laughs>
1: right. Same thing. I'm like, Rashid's one of those dudes that even though I know he does he's not gonna get in there, I'd argue with him being in the Hall of Fame, like Sam for they're just those hoopers. There are some cats in this league that just hoop. And they do that better when, when they in the they did it better than anybody else. And Rashid is one of those dudes. And Carmelo at the time wasn't there yet. But that's what that team needed to get them over the hump. That's what secured their championships. You know, it got them there one year, got them to game seven another year. So, you know, I don't know if Carmelo would have been ready to handle that. You know, because he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't Rashid at that time.
0: I got and, you. And think
1: about it. The team would not have deferred to him the way they deferred to him. But well, she came there and took over that team. Like, everybody's like, nah, he's our leader. You know what I'm saying? Charles, right. He still everything, but he was the leader. Everybody, like, hey, man, you're that dude. And that wasn't going to happen with Melo.
0: Right. So who, yeah. who do you think should be in the Hall of Fame that's not in the Hall of Fame or might not make it?
1: Um... Who should be in there It's not in there? Um I'm trying to think. I personally think Timmy Holloway should be in there. Um Chris got in. I I thought Chris should have gotten in. Um try to think who's eligible, who's coming up that's not in and that hasn't gotten in. Bernard King got in, so that that was that was that was the one. You know, um, Bernard King not getting in was a problem, big problem. There, there's no way he should have had to wait this long for him to get in. Um, I can't. I have to really, off the top of my head, I have to really go back and think about who's not in that really should be in, um, and who doesn't have a chance to get in. You're not know, arguing. You know, I'd argue the, you know, Rasheed Wallace, the Sam Cassell, Um, you know, I'm pretty sure we're going to have an issue arguing whether Lou Williams should get in there. I mean, yeah, he's going to be a tough call. Um, I think we're going to have to argue about Jamal Crawford getting in, you know, who technically I you Know looking at the players, some of the people that are getting in now that you know he should be in as well. Um, yeah, but right, but they're, they're not eligible yet, so but I could see them being a problem, you know. I, you know, and I, and I even get the Robert Ori argument, you know. Um, but it depends on the criteria. Um, Robert played in a, a large role in te- every team he was on that won a championship, he played a large role in getting them that championship. But at no point in time did he, especially during the regular season, play at Hall of Fame level. You know, where he was the guy, you know, was there ever time to be argued that he should have been all NBA or should have been an all-star? No, that's not what he did. But come playoff time, you know, Boom. That that's a whole that's that's a whole different thing because he became a whole nother animal. You know, uh, but the fact that he got seven reasons and he played a role in that, it'll be interesting to see if he, you know, I, I Robert is one of those guys I can argue for against. I, I I get it if he's not, but I think it's a shame that he's not because there's your criteria in, in it shouldn't be so tight that it doesn't lend itself to uniqueness. He has a very unique situation. And, you know, no, it's not for everybody. You know what I'm saying? It's not for everybody. But it's a very, very unique situation. And that should always be considered. Um, Oh, you know, as I'm talking, I just thought of the person that's not in it that I think should be in it. Who is it? First the top, at the top, look, Penny Hardaway. Oh. I right. agree. That's yeah. yeah, I, I agree. Just in talking it out, I thought about, like, who was that? Oh, that's easy. You know, and yeah, he had injury, but it doesn't make a difference. Everybody knew who Penny was before the injury. He, he's like the Gale Sayers of, you know, the NBA. You know, there, there's no question he was the best player in the NBA before his injuries, you know, and uh, very similar with Derrick Rose, you know. Um, but for somebody who's, who's eligible... Who should have been in by now? Who's been retired from the game for at least five years? That's okay. Now I got your answer. Penny Hardaway.
0: Penny Hardaway, gosh, that's. I mean, it's a good answer. I can't argue that one bit, man. It's...
1: Yeah, nah, nobody, nobody, nobody could. They should, you know. But once again, I think you know, you don't have to put people in with actresses, but I do think you know if you put him in, everybody gets it. You know, I. You know the only difference between penny hardaway's career and bill walton's career is the fact that uh bill walton won a ring you know now penny did get to the finals but you know um bill walton's career was with injury. you know if you look at the body of work then you're like mm, he didn't put enough work because he was always injured you know but you can't give him that credit you know and i'm not taking away his ring in boston but, you know, that wasn't like it was propelled by him. You know, so when I say one ring, I'm like, you know, the ring in Boston, you know, he had a good six-man year. But Boston was going to win that ring regardless of whether Bill Russell was there or not.
0: Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I'm saying that Penny Hardaway's career was just as impactful as Bill Walton, but it mar- it's more an injury. So, you know, even though he didn't win a ring the way Bill Walton did in Portland, um and, and if that's what tips the scales, they're fine. Just, just say it. But their careers are comparable. And, you know, acknowledge the fact that, hey, Penny did at least take his team to the finals. You know?
0: True, true. I got you. I mean, I agree with that 100%. So what's the greatest what if in basketball history? He's talking about Penny. And he could have oh. been – yeah, what's the greatest what if?
1: Yeah, bro. If if Jared Rose had never gotten injured. And you know, and I think, you know, or I don't want to say never gotten injured, it wasn't injury prone, because it wasn't one injury that took him out. I think the succession of injuries um, and what he was able to do at such a young age uh is the biggest what if um possibly, you know, and from from a player standpoint in the history of basketball, you know, um Just from players, But I think the second what if is, you know, with the Bulls, what would have happened to the Bulls if Michael had not left? You know, um, you know, I, people tend to think they would have won eight in a row. You know, hell, we saw how hard it was for them to win the, the second, third one, without, you know, with, with even that break in mind. You know, to, to think that they could have run, you know, an eight-year stretch, is impossible especially looking at what Houston was able to do and you know at some point if they had to face Houston twice in the finals they're gonna lose one of those finals the Bulls never had a dominant center they never faced a dominant center in the finals you know so from a matchup standpoint you know and if you look at the players that the Bulls the Hall of Favors that they went up against in their run you know to especially in the finals but, you know, even getting there, the Patrick Ewing's, you know, uh, the Reggie Millers, you know, you know, that's, that's getting to the finals where they had to go through Indiana and they had to go through New York. But let's take it to, you know, once they got to the finals, you know, the top players they went up against, Charles Barkley, Gary Payton, Carl Malone and John Stockton, you know, um, who, who am I missing? Clyde Drexler. Clyde Drexler. Okay. Magic Johnson, but that's Magic Johnson at the back end of his career in '91. You know what I'm saying? That's not Magic Johnson, Magic Johnson. That's you know, that's Magic Johnson at the end. And I'll take Magic Johnson out of there, but that's a technicality. Um, but none of those players, none of the players we just mentioned, are really top 10 all-time caliber. They're great. Some of them may be top 20, depending on where you rank them, and this and the other. But none of them is closing the gap on Michael. Hakeem Olajuwon is the only one that is in the top ten conversation that if he plays up against Mike in a series, whatever Mike does, he's going to do on the other end. And he's going to do – both of them are doing on defense end. He's the closest player to Mike the Bulls would have ever faced in the finals. And they had no one to guard him. At least the players we're mentioning, you know, Jay Payton could at least guard Michael. Clyde Jackson could at least guard Michael. Charles Barkley could at least guard Michael. You know, Stockton Malone were not guard him. You know, but you look at the Bulls who they had and said, "Who the hell is guarding the Key one
0: Bill Cartwright.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Bill. for <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You know, Bill Winnington. It's like yo, that's. So not only is he gonna close him, look who's what he look at who's checking him defensively. You know, it's it's yeah, nice. Nah, there's you know, so you know, people look at the what if, and I agree with that. If the Bulls, what if the Bulls, what if Michael had never left? You know, and never took taking that two years off or whatever. What what if? You know, could they have done that? You know, um, I think that's an easy one, but I the answer to that what if I don't think would have been eight in a row. You know, I, I, I just don't see them – I don't see them – because regardless of what happened to the Bulls, Houston Rockets were going to make it to the finals two years in a row because they already proved that. But once there, if the Bulls had gotten through both times, I just don't see them winning both. I got you. And, you know, I, I, so, you know, to me, that's like the second greatest what if. But in my mind, it's the second what if because – in my mind, I already know what the answer is gonna be. But Derek Rose is a what if we don't know. You know what I'm saying? We do not know. You know that um, you know, that rookie of the year, you know, elevating the Bulls to be problematic to Cleveland, you know, um, him being the youngest ever to win the MVP. And the next year after that is when things start to fall apart. You know, it's like multiple MVPs possibly. You know, finally getting through Henry Hill, especially if LeBron leaves and goes to Miami. You know, uh, I mean, well, I mean, if he, if he never, if he's already in Miami, but them playing against Miami and, and beat Miami. You know, because you know what happens. You know how the game works. You know, you see Derrick Rose healthy, and you see them not being able to get over the hook. Against Miami, that's when that Rasheed Wallace shows up in Chicago. That one player is like, I'm going to get you all there. Let's go. No. You
0: know? you, yeah, you're right. You're right for sure. Um, speaking of that, I mean, speaking of LeBron going to Miami, who is a better big three? LeBron, D-Wade, and Chris Bosh, or the Nets big three right now? Who do you think is better? It's easy
1: to say them in, in Miami because at least we saw them win the championship. It's hard to start gauging, you know uh, – the you know what big three uh who what big two uh you know duos are better when they we haven't seen them at their peak. We you know you know I'm not saying championships are end all be all but they do mean something they do carry weight back to the Bill Walton situation with Penny Hardwick. That's the tipping point. You know what I'm saying? Both of their careers over and Bill won Bill won two rings and Penny didn't win one. You know Bill won one where he was the centerpiece, when he was the finals MVP. he was the reason his team won a ring. That means something. You know, that means something. So to look at, like, you know, Bosh and and, and Dwayne and LeBron, they at least have two rings. And we haven't seen this team get out of the first round of playoff here. So to me, no, it's not, you know, I can't just do it on paper from what I see because things change the further shit goes along. You know, they look good in the first round. They look good when they play during the regular season together. But you know as well as I do, when the teams get better and the coaching gets better and the stakes get higher and the games mean more, then we got to see what you're really about because that exposes who you really are. And no disrespect, but James Harden got a history of not being the same James Harden. So I don't want to sit up and say, oh, yeah, those big three, and then James Harden does a James Harden. He's like, <laughs> so now that big three is no longer big three, it's a big two. You know, I think, and I'm not trying to re-ask your questions. I'm saying that, for me, the bigger argument is who's the best three? LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson. Now we can talk. Because we've seen all, you know, we've seen both triplets play at that high level. We've seen them win championships.
0: So who is it?
1: <laughs> oh, oh, it's, it's, man, it, that that goes State three years it's beyond. Yeah, you can't
0: you can't do anything with that. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree okay. with that.
1: Yeah. Now you know. Let, let's 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 see what this. Uh, let's see what the Nets do. Let's have this conversation. You know, four years from now. You know, when everybody's contract is up. All right. See if they play healthy. See if hard Harden shows. You know, let let's have that conversation. In I, I think it's you know, as a journalist you know, I think we need to move beyond answer questions that you know, aren't are fulfilled yet you know, let, let's see what these guys can do because we haven't, you know, they haven't shown us anything yet not to be compared to the, you know the other dudes that we've, you know that we basically have seen basically get to the mountaintop and what they did let, let's see let's see what happens, if they can get to the mountaintop and let's see what happens once they get to the mountaintop i sweet switch and, and, and to be honest with you we can take that whole big three thing and I'll flip it on his head by saying, because everybody looks at it as a duo, but I'll take the Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, Dennis Rodman three over any three that's ever played in the history of the game.
0: Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's...
1: Even, even over Clay Durant and Steph, even over Bosh and him, even over Jerry West, yeah. Elgin Baylor, and Will Chamberlain, you know, even over Bill Russell, Bob Cousy, and, you know, Anyone of the smell, John Halmatech, even though he's coming out of the way, I don't care what big three you throw at me. Andrew Tony, Julius Irving, Moses Malone. We got some big threes that were hella. But that Jordan pippen Rodney, man. <laughs> please. Man, all they, right. They just, they just didn't label it a victory, but you want to talk about victory?
0: Th- that's, that's it. That's the pinnacle right there. That's the pinnacle.
1: Yes,
0: sir. All right, man. Switching gears real quick. Where would you rate Good Kid, Mad City on the all-time greatest albums? For me, it's top five. I mean, I'm just saying
1: hmm,
0: hip hop rap albums, top five.
1: It, it took a long time for it to grow on me because it was a the theme album, and it musically, the mood of the album was so laid back. I don't like. I I didn't feel. I got the best of what Kendrick could be. And I'm one of those guys who judge MCs by them, in my belief, pushing themselves to what their max level is. I thought we got Kendrick's max level onto Pimp a Butterfly. Now, it took me listening to Pimp damn and good kid as a big three itself for me to really appreciate good kid as a standalone because I look at them as a part of a, you know, as a journey that an artist was on to let us know that he was on another level that nobody had been on, you know? And and, and if you look at artists, sometimes you have to look at them, not as singular entities because that's not where their creativity lies. It doesn't lie just doing this one album. In their mind, he's executing one album by thinking of another. So he was doing Good Kid, but he had to pimp a butterfly in his mind. The same way he did Finishing Up the Pimp, he had Songs for Damn in his mind, and that was his trifecta. So listening now over the last couple of years, it in context, I don't listen to it as a standalone now, but now I appreciate it. it's top twenty now. But it was, it, I was like, eh, I wasn't really a big fan of it. It had its moments to me, but I wasn't a fan of Good City. I mean, Good Kid, Bad City to begin with. But after seeing it as a whole, I'm like, oh yeah, it's top twenty. I, I, I can't. I have to look at other albums to see where it places that for me. Um. But once again, I want to admit that I didn't get it at first. It's like D'Angelo's album, his second album. I didn't get it until I saw the concert. The first album, Brown Sugar, I got. I'm like, okay, the singles, the way it's done, is music, I get it. I didn't get, you know, the second one. I'm like, this is, this is it's almost... Monochromatic. It all sounds the same. I don't get what's special about this until I saw the concert. Until I saw him live and understood that that's what this album is. It's not an album. It's an experience. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I experienced it. I'm like, oh shit, this is this is (laughs) gross. You know what I'm saying? I get it now. You know, sometimes it happens like that. You know, like I. You may not be a fan, I don't know, but it's like I can listen to Hamilton as an album. Like, this is amazing. But until you actually see it played out, you're like, oh, my God, this shit is so, so different. You know, you need to see the full scope and just not listen to it in a single entity in order to get what it's really all about. And I throw, you know, Good Kid, Bad City in that situation where, it, for me, I didn't get it at first. I'm like, ah, Kendrick's doper in this because I've heard him freestyle. I know what he can actually do. And this is this is this is moody. This is storytelling. Ah, whatever. He can you know he can deliver better. But you know years later when I really got when I when I evolved <laughs> when I evolved I'm like oh shit okay he was the head of his time on this one this is this it yeah. it's amazing but for me it's top twenty I'd I have to really like see where I place it to start knocking down certain albums and seeing where it positions itself in there but. He's one of the very few, if not only, one I can maybe say has three in my top 20, though.
0: Gotcha. Well, who's your favorite producer of all time, then? Top three
1: favorite producer. Uh, music. oh, Go Primo. top three. <laughs> Primo. He's a – Primo's that dude. You know, I don't – and I, I don't want to say he's the best. I still think the best is Drake. Um, you know, Drake is phenomenal. Um – Timberland, Pharrell, you know, phenomenal. Um and to me if you want to take the Bomb Squad as a production unit they are, you know, they are above and beyond uh because of what they did, you know, just you know, to me do, do you include them as producer, or you need singular producers?
0: No, the whole group can be producers. The whole the whole group can You can call it that. I
1: don't know. To to me, the bomb squad changed the game in a way that, as great as Primo is, um, in his beat selection and his scratching and using using the turntable as an instrument, that that is nothing anybody's done. But just his work with, like, you know, from BDP on to now, everything you did with Gangsta. to me, Primo is on that level. Um, Kanye's right behind him. No doubt. Kanye, Kanye. But Kanye to me as his bullshit can be held against him as well as his great shit. So it's you know, that's that becomes problematic. But when he's on, there's very few that can fuck with him. But if I can include Bomb Squad as a unit, then yeah, they're it. And and, and the thing that separates them is not just what they were able to do the public enemy with public enemy, but just the Ice Cube album alone that you add on to that. You know, the Welcome to America, that's, you know, yeah. The the hecticness, the, the, the reinvention of sampling, you know, uh, the chopping up songs, you know, and the pace and energy in which they sonically brought sound to the table in hip-hop. That phonetic pace you know, you would think those songs are like 140 beats per minute when they're really sometimes 101, but the energy and the pacing seems so fast and hectic. You know, and like, if you listen to Fight the Power, there are 22 different samples in the first minute of that song. You'll never know it. But the way they delivered it is so just different and it really changed the game. Um I'll be honest. I, you know, I, I, I did not purposely not mention Dilla, but you know, it's kind of Dilla. Dilla's like the production version to me of Good Kid, Bad City. It's you know, it it, it, it took me a while to get into it because it seemed so sublime. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm not I'm not moved by this the way I'm moved by others. But over the course of years, I've grown to really appreciate what he's done. Um, he's still not in my top, you know, five. Like I said, I can go with the Kanyes. I can go with the, you know, um, uh, my my uh, primos. You know, um, hell, I can go by Outkast. You know, just them was the production unit. You know, um, you know, but I do, I do get Dylan now in a way I didn't get him before. But to answer your question, there's a singular right now. My top is Bomb Squad. I'll still go with Bomb Squad. Yeah, somebody has to do some hell of work to knock them off the throne, in my book.
0: I got you. I got you. All right. So, last question, man. This is the last one I got for you. Favorite shooter hoop in of all time?
1: Favorite shooter hoop in it? Wow. Favorite shooter hoop in? That's a great question because um, that's different than my all time favorite hoop shoe um, favorite shoe to hoop in this is going to sound crazy <laughs> no seriously it's going to sound crazy Nike had this shoe it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a tie Nike had this shoe um called the stunner and it was a hybrid of a phone posit and a shock when i hooped in those shoes man it, it damn it changed my life back in the day i was like oh my god because it has so much going on um yeah, it, it, there was nothing like hooping in that shoe ever um, at the time. Um, yeah, at the time, um, and and since then, I've had some great experiences in some Kobe's. Uh, the nine, tens, elevens, all three of those have been amazing, but the tie. The Kobe's with the nine ten. The Kobe's nine tens and 11s. All three of them would be probably number two. The tie at the top to Hoopie, and this may sound crazy. Actually, fucking <laughs> Jordan thirty threes or Jordan thirty fours. Really. <laughs> really.
0: What? <laughs> That's wow. not what I expected.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Now you gotta understand. That's me playing ball now at this age. Not when I was really, really hooping. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But just from the feel and the way my game has changed and the effort I put in now at 50-something now as opposed to like 30-something, is different. I don't know if I felt, I don't know if I would feel that way about the shoe now, about, you know, about that shoe 20 years from now if I was 30 years old and really, really hooping like I was hooping back then. But just hooping in those shoes, shooting around, you know, kicking it with the, you know, with them, my kids, you know, not really like, not really hardcore, hardcore hooping. But I'm like, I'm never taking these shoes. I'm never playing anything <laughs> else because they're just, they are just so dope. They they really are. They really, really, really are dope. Really are dope. I wanted to actually say the Kyrie's, the Kyrie twos, but they don't hold up. They don't feel the same on concrete as they do on wood. It's a different shoe. They're definitely an indoor basketball shoe, without question. Without question. The way the outsole is rolled up, it works so much better because of the connection you get on wood with that shoe that you do on concrete. I got
0: you. you know I gotta ask, you know? man, how was it like working with Kyrie to make Uncle Drew? I I gotta ask. I
1: didn't, you know what? I didn't, I didn't I didn't <laughs> Kyrie called, I mean his people called me because he wanted me in the movie. I never really had any interaction with him at any time during the set. I was on the set for one day. Um, I was, you know, and I had one scene to shoot, and we really knocked that scene out extremely quick because Charles, the director, was like, look, here's what you all are supposed to say, but I want you all to have fun with it." So we did like four or five different takes back and forth, and that was really it, and I just sat on the set, fuck with Shaq, fuck with Nate, fuck with Reggie, fuck with Chris Webb, you know, but I never saw... Fuck with, uh, what's my man name? <laughs> you know, um, but didn't see Kyrie on set. It wasn't until we saw each other in Vegas afterwards, you know, and I thank you for having me in the film, but we, yeah. But just, I was only on set for one day, man. And, you know, just seeing the people just being there, being around, it was it was dope as hell. But I didn't get a chance to really interact with Kyrie. You know, um, on set of, of, of doing that. So I, I wish I could tell you a lie and say that I did. But it was really, I thought it was just super cool that he, like, specifically wanted me to play me in the movie. That, you know, and I, and I, and I know as journalists we're supposed to be objective and all this, and the other. But I tell people all the time, you know, I, I can, you're not going to hear me ever say a bad word about Kyrie. I mean, period, I, you know, just because of who he is. But that alone takes the objectivity away from, you know, for me. Because there's a lot of was in this game that he could have chose and you know bigger names instead and the other, but he you know he chose me for a reason, and it was just out of the you know you know the respect for my work over the years, you know, and it's not like we're like best friends or partners or you know like we're cool as shit, but you know it wasn't that was really just out of love for like you know you know tipping his cap like yo I respect your work, man, you know, and so that's that that's what that was all about, so you know, yeah, I didn't you know yeah. I, you know what, but I'm glad that you asked that question because it reminds me that I do need to find a way for us to like, just kick it. You know what I'm saying? Just spend time just on some GP after the fact, you know, for me to properly say, hey man, thanks, you know, let's, let's finish this bottle, man, you know, and just, you know, one second, you know, do that, talk, talk about real stuff, you know, talk about, you know.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, Kyrie might be the most hated player in the NBA, but it's so unfair that the treatment he gets from the media, I feel like, man. That's that's my take. You
1: know, my mother always said the uh, most fearful person in America is a black man with a plan. And um, when being black in this country and having a plan and not – and them knowing that your plan basically can't be co-op, they're gonna come down on it. You know, um, so I you know, I I get why the media does what they do to him. You know, um, because he's not one following protocol and they know second that they can't control what it is that he's doing. You know, um so that that becomes bothersome and especially when you're dealing with athletes or those of us that quote unquote sign contracts you know you're supposed to act a certain way when you sign your name on the dotted line because that's supposed to be your agreement with whoever it is you're making agreements with but you know um, life functions with us not functioning by all the laws and every agreement we make and life still goes on. You know what I'm saying? You know, a signed contract should not be any more valuable than your commitment to your kids or your wife or your family. And we see motherfuckers breaking those rules every day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Every day. You know, but when it comes to, you know, somebody that signed a contract, you know, and, you know, money gets involved in it, then they become bastards. As opposed to somebody that got three side chicks and, you know, not giving money to his kids for the, so they can be, you know, live their best life. You know, he's not honoring his contract to his family. You know, but let's sign it, you know. God forbid you sign a deal with a company, you know, and there's money involved, you know, and, you know, so I, I I always take those things in consideration when I see how the media, and not just media, but just outside sources who, you know, sometimes are shaped by what the media says, or they come to their own conclusions or whatever, you know, how they, how they get there. And, um, you know, but I always understand that line of thinking. And always understand that those individuals who don't go by those rules of that contract, you know, how they're gonna be looked at, and how they're gonna be gauged. You know, so you're right, you know, Kyrie may be, you know, outwardly one of the most hated athletes at the time, but, you know, it did, once again, part of it is, you know, being black and not, you know, being black and not following the rules. Hell, people hate Floyd Mayweather. I mean, He's an asshole, but you know, he, 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 you know, and, and, you know, you can say he duck fights and this, and the other, but the hate he gets is for not following the rules. You you know what I'm saying? you know, you get to that point where you don't fight. They hate it. You know, Kyrie was not hated as much as Allen Iverson was hated.
0: Allen Iverson. Not not even close.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. But what did not, what, what didn't Allen Iverson do? He didn't follow the rules. You know the world, like we just talk about America. The world hated Muhammad Ali, hated him. You know, but at the time, they came around to understanding. You know, what he was, but at the time, they hated him because what did he do? He didn't follow the rules. So you know, I I know what that's all about when it comes to Kyrie, because there's a history there. You know, and a lot of it has to do with his skin color. A lot of it has to do with his culture. But a lot of it has to do with you know. Um, who's in control of telling stories in the media that you speak of, you know, and who the audience, who the predominant audience is for that media. You know, and, you know, we happen to live in a space where if, you know, somebody of color, you know, especially somebody black, and especially if they're male, they don't quote unquote follow the rules and follow the rules to the T, then yeah, hate's going to come.
0: I got you, man. I mean, all I want to say about Kyrie is if you get him to come chop it up with you again, let me come with y'all, man.
1: <laughs> I got you. I got you. I got you. I got you.
0: If that ever happens, I'll give you the heads up. <laughs> uh-huh. All right, Scoop, man. Well, I appreciate it, man. Once again, influential, one of the most influential people in sports media. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it, man. Oh, man. I appreciate it, Mr. Honor.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad we sit down and chop it up this morning.
0: Yep. Thank you, man. You got
1: my number, you know
0: how to reach me. Anytime you need they just let me know. All right. Thank you, Scoop. I call to be good, my man. All right, man. Thank you. <clears throat> Deuces, man. Thank you. you. <laughs> oh. Holy shit. Oh my god. Thank you.